The darker the night, the brighter the stars Everything's fun to a young heart When you find out what your heart used to be It's gonna feel like you've been dreaming Love if you want the truth, anything's possible you can walk up on the moon Or you can watch it roll It's never in the stars It's in your heart Yeah, you'll be kicked around But get up anyway And you'll be broken into better shape Broken into better shape I was one more mistake for me this is Pastor Glenn Thomas of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Early as the COVID-19 pandemic began to make its way around the world, I endeavored to write down some reflections on the meaning of this moment and what we might take from it. Been adding new material for several months now, including some thoughts on the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests as well. You can read these essays on my blog, Plains Words, plainswords.blogspot.com. If you have thoughts or comments about these words, use the blog to post your reply or send me an email at gthomas at smlutheran.com. Theme, Kingdom, Thing 3, At Hand. Religion considers itself a journey to come closer to God. In reality, it usually works to keep God far away, or at least within the limitations of what we are willing to accept as God's realm. We desire to be close to God after this life is over, to reside in his heavenly city with its streets of gold. We would like God to be near us in times of need, to protect us from threats and dangers, to provide for us in times of need, to lend us healing power when we are sick, and to fill our hearts with hope and joy when we are down. When we look at the brokenness of the world, we blame atheists and secularists who have driven God from our homes and our schools and our public life. Let God back in, we say, and all will be well, as long as it's the God we worship. We worship a God who reigns from on high, who keeps track of rights and wrongs and properly assigns rewards and punishments. We have built a system that we call religion to keep God in his proper place, doling out rewards and punishments as required by law, giving mercy and the occasional miracle just to keep the game interesting. We know that Jesus talks a lot about love and healing sick people and giving money to the poor. Nice things to be sure. But we know deep in our hearts that God is ultimately concerned about spiritual and moral matters. In that way, religion remains a private personal concern, a choice. 
you'd think Americans had invented it. We didn't. This was the Church of the Middle Ages. Religion permeated every aspect of medieval life, if sometimes with a heavy hand. For most of the population, life without the Church was simply not conceivable. For people whose lives were filled with hardship and constantly overshadowed by death, church was not just another activity, it was a necessity for survival. Despite our modern skepticism about the medieval church, most people were truly devout and practiced their faith fervently, even hopefully. Yet in all of this, God remained distant, aloof, seated on his heavenly throne, watching over his creation with righteousness and, occasionally, benevolence. Any relationship with such a God was, by definition, transactional. Blessings received for true faith and good works. Acts of penance made to compensate for sins, great and small. There were lots of sins that demanded compensation. Some, actually, could be paid for with cash. A dedicated mass, a gift given in adoration of an ancient relic, an offering made for a special occasion dedicated by the Pope that could resolve some, if not all, of a person or their loved one's sin, erasing thousands upon thousands of years of purgatorial punishment. Until Luther came along. The Church complained that Luther endangered the religious well-being of the laity by destroying practices that kept them close to God. Luther attacked indulgences and later the whole array of common religious acts because, in fact, they distanced people from a real relationship with God. These religious acts turned believers back to themselves, to their sorrow, to their fear. God remained in heaven afar bound by the same rules and procedures that governed the life of the faithful, no more free than they were. Luther dreamed of a different life of faith, where penance was not resolved by praxis or ritual, but experienced deep in the heart of the believer who found solace in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. He wrote longingly of faith that was profound, powerful enough to cast out actual demons that haunted consciences, not merely the cartoon devils conceived to motivate recalcitrant sinners. He yearned for faith that amended hearts and redirected lives and rebuilt worlds. His writings often reveal a deep emotion and passion in his own spirituality, his struggle to find peace in his Anfaktung, to fully experience a God of grace. What changed his life was the realization that God was not waiting for him to pass this religious test, but was actively transforming his very being and his every act through the power of the grace bestowed in baptism, the promise fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Luther, God was not seated on some distant heavenly throne, the keeper of law waiting for him to accomplish his own salvation, God was hard at work in Luther and in the world, creating a new Adam, bringing life to a new kingdom, right here, right now. That is the other important part of this equation. Religion keeps God at bay by assigning religious fulfillment to a distant event in the chronological future, at the end of life, at the end of time. For religion, in the Middle Ages and now, the work of faith is given as a down payment on some, hopefully, heavenly tomorrow. The potential for a different ending, 
one filled with heat and pain and, and torment, it's a powerful deterrent to sin, supposedly. As the modern age comes to a close, it seems that cynicism has got the best of the devil, until even the threats of the fires of hell have little or no impact on the choices of most humans. As attention spans shorten and immediate gratification becomes a defining lifestyle, a religion dependent on the appeal of investing in some mystical post-life scenario is less and less meaningful and less faithful. How did we reach this point? This is not following the path of a Jesus who came spending grace like it was going out of style, like it was burning a hole in his pocket. He confronted the need that was immediately in front of him, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, touching the untouchable, crossing boundaries, geographic and social. And he did it in real hands-on physical acts. He spat into the eyes of the blind, hugged children, broke bread with friends, and lifted drowning disciples from the lake. He told stories about farmers and fathers, shepherds and servants, real people. And in the end, he hurt and bled and died, as any of us might. His instructions to his disciples for their ministry was the same. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And those instructions were to be an enactment of their proclamation. The kingdom of heaven has come near. To come near, to approach, to be in the vicinity, close by. It is a word that describes the historical turning point of Jesus' arrival, the eminence of the destruction of Jerusalem, the hour of destiny that is Jesus' true mission. Its best translation is at hand, a baton passed in relay, a help up from a deep pit, the touch of a beloved at bedside. It is anticipation in the moment of fulfillment, the bright flash on the horizon at dawn. This is Jesus' schedule. Not a distant and abstract someday, but an extant, if unrecognized, reality that can no longer be ignored. Jesus didn't invent this idea, by the way. Jesus comes to announce what was always true for God's people. The soul of the Torah is its immediacy, its pertinence. The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. The prophets did not come to predict events beyond the veil of time. They spoke of the present brokenness of Israel and its immediate consequence. While we rummage through the pages of the prophets for the keys to unlock a mysterious future like a gambler perusing the daily racing form for a hot tip on a long shot, the truth stares us in the face and dares us to attend to it. Salvation is not waiting for us. It is here. Why are we still waiting? That's what we do in a quarantine, of course. We wait. We sit in the safety of our homes and we wait for the plague to pass, for the demonstrators to go home and the streets to clear, for a vaccine to be developed and distributed, for leaders to lead, for a sign to come and show us the way. We yearn for the day when this will all be over and we will be free. We have forgotten. We are free right now, and the world is waiting for us to do something with our God-given freedom. 
The great failure of the church is its willful ignorance to the immediacy of its calling, its procrastination in Christ's mission to the detriment of the neighbor. Perhaps we have watched the cycles of history for too long, and so we assume that this day will pass as well. The world has been through so much already and just kept on going without really changing. There is still a generation among us who has lived through worldwide financial depression and war. There has been social unrest before. There have been sickness and disease. We are comfortable in the assumption that this too will pass, won't it? The problem, of course, is that for the most part, time does pass. Problems come and go, and then things return to their previously undisturbed state. We think that is a blessing. After all, change is frightening and difficult. Better the devil we know. A cliche that depends on our willful obliviousness to the devil in our midst. Privilege creates a myopathy that shelters us from the suffering of the world and our neighbor behind the facade of our own real and imagined travails. Wrapped up in our own needs, our heart is closed off and our faith is defeated. And the mission of the kingdom of God is denied. In the misery of the Babylonian exile, God gave a powerful vision of redemption to the Israelites. But the image is not a conquering hero who would overcome their enemies. It is a figure who suffers too. The Savior will be despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, as one from whom others hide their faces. God would redeem their pain and grief by binding himself to the pain and the grief of the world. Instead of the same old cycle of ignoring the brokenness of our lives and our world, God invites us to move into the deep experiences of all that hurts to find him, to find ourselves, to find truth. Facing up to who we are and to what we have done is the beginning and the end of change, the start of what is new. Isaiah introduced the figure of the suffering servant in the context of that great promise. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The joining of the divine to the mortal, the coming of the Son into the midst of injustice and peace, is the new thing that creates new things breaking us away from our narcissistic self-involvements and opening us up to see the world around us is the moment when the kingdom of God dawns in our eyes and in our hearts. Here in the poverty and oppression of our neighbor is purpose and identity. Here in the fear and helplessness of our neighbor is strength and healing. Here in a lost and wandering world is the signpost of a day that is becoming in our midst. Now, more than two millennia later, these words reach out to us in the midst of the darkness of 2020. We have been exiled from everything we consider normal, usual, important. We are suffering. We are waiting for this moment to pass. We are looking for the calendar page to turn and take us to some new place, to any other place than this. But God is bringing in his kingdom right here, right now, and dares us to stay where we are at this time, to open our lives and our hearts to this moment, to have courage and hope and faith, 
to discover that our salvation is bound to the salvation of our neighbor and the whole world. And our neighbor and the whole world can't wait for us any longer. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. There is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. With all due deference to Dr. King, let's not say this is a time. Let us instead embrace the promise. This is the time. This is God's time. And so it must be our time, too. We have been burdened for too long with bad theology and false leadership and horrible teaching and corrupted institutions and every other manner of human brokenness. But that need not stop us any longer. We have learned something during these months of quarantine, during this time of disorder and unrest. We have been opened to acts of faith long avoided and possibilities long unheeded. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. It has come for us. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us enter it with joy and thanksgiving. Thank you for allowing me to share these words with you. If you'd like a printed copy of these essays, please contact me at gthomas at smlutheran.com. Yeah, you'll be kicked around, but get up anyway.